Gladys extends the Sydney lockdown. Morrison puts party before nation. China sends a ship to spy on our war games, just like last time. And the good news is about feral goats. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday in what is an incredibly difficult day for many Australians, particularly on the East Coast. And joining me from lockdown in Sydney is the grand love of my life in this lifetime and every lifetime, (laughs) Van Batten. How are you going, Van? You are so good. You are so good. Well, you're so good. I, I just, it must, it's so difficult. It's so difficult knowing that we will be apart probably now for a month, at least another two weeks. Yeah, uh, so if the lockdown continues on the schedule announced today in Sydney, so Gladys Berejiklian came out and said we're going until at least the 30th of July. So that will be more than a month you and I have been apart with uh, no end in sight. So I, they say at least until the 30th and my desperate, desperate fear is that it's actually going to be a lot longer. Yeah, look, it, it's it's looking pretty grim. I have to say the entire COVID situation in New South Wales and Victoria in particular uh, isn't good. It's It's quite bad. 97 cases today in in Sydney, 24 were in the community while infectious, six are status unknown. That's nearly one in three. There are 71 people in hospital, 20 in intensive care, four on ventilators. Again, that's almost one in three people uh, in hospital with COVID need intensive care. Uh, The good news is 65,000 tests in the last 24 hours. So that's that's a good sign. Um, you know, if people needed any kind of reminding that we've moved a long way from the days where this was described as something that happened to old people, let me just give you this uh, this stat. Half the people in intensive care are under 60 and one of them is in their 20s. Yeah. You know, this so we is- know this about the Delta variant. You know, the one of the mysteries of coronavirus uh, since the beginning of the outbreak more than 18 months ago was why didn't this illness flatten young people in the way that it absolutely ripped through older people? Well, you know, the Delta variant turns out to be the great coronavirus equaliser and whatever has happened with the mutation in the virus has meant that, you know, young people are not safe. And this calls into question a whole lot of the, you know, um, orthodoxy that was used to inform the vaccine stroll out in Australia that younger people had this buffer and it was all going to be all right. And it's not all right. Things are not okay. And it's becoming very apparent from the watching the presses in New South Wales that the, the virus is running ahead of the government's response to it in this state. And, of course, now it's leached to other states. I believe you might have a hilarious story to tell us all, Ben, about your personal experiences this week. Well, yes. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll get on to that. Let me just say that in Victoria now we've had eight cases today, uh, all connected to um, sources in New South Wales. Uh, 200 people are in lockdown in an apartment building in Maribyrnong. 
uh, and uh, Jerome, the, uh, <laughs> the 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 track and trace commandant, has made clear that uh, some of the people involved have not been forthcoming, and there will be a throwing of books uh, at some point in the future. Now is not the time for throwing of books, as I said on the weekend wrap. Um, now is not the time for the throwing of books, but there will be a throwing of books because I myself um, was uh, exposed at a tier one site, uh, albeit very briefly, uh, at a drive through. Uh, thankfully. What were you doing, Ben? Uh, <laughs> I, I was buying McDonald's. There's no point in trying to hide it. Uh, I was uh, not a sponsor of this show. Uh, <laughs> But uh, look, thankfully, I've had my test and it's come back negative. And the advice is that uh, in my circumstances, uh, my exposure is not um, does not require quarantine, which is good. But certainly, we had a very tense, uh, nearly twenty four hour period where myself, and in fact, a lot of people in our district in central Victoria. Uh, right, really, right through Central Victoria, are now concerned uh, that this these removalists have stopped in a number of places between Sydney and Adelaide. Anyone who's ever done that drive knows that you basically drive through the eastern, from north to southeastern part of uh, Victoria to get to Melbourne, and then you jump on a highway and then go north, and then go west and you cut through a huge slice of the state to get to South Australia from from Sydney. Uh, and frankly, a lot of people are very concerned, very concerned that there's exposures. Uh, and frankly, I expect there to be more cases in Victoria tomorrow. I, I hope there's not, and I hope there's not a need for another lockdown. But, you know, it, as you say, Van, this is running ahead of the New South Wales government and running ahead of the, the Morrison government too. I think we should be clear about that. The the ad campaign that stirred up a lot of people this week, quite rightly, I think goes to your point about the, the false narrative that young people wouldn't need to be vaccinated. And now, of course, we've got this ad, which is just horrendous, horrendous fear-mongering with a young person who would never be allowed to get to that point of pain and discomfort without some form of sedation and pain relief, gasping for air, and people being told to book their vaccination when the reality is for a lot of young people that's not even a possibility. So, well, this is the this is the great irony of the ad. Like I described the ad on Twitter as a profound self-owned by the government. You know, the idea that the Morrison government, and let's be clear, the awareness campaign they're finally running about coronavirus and vaccination, massively overdue. Um, obviously, there's a lot of comment about whether the campaign was delayed because we didn't, just didn't have the vaccines to supply a demand if a demand was encouraged. The issue with the ad, that ad campaign and with the Arm Yourself campaign that they're running, $40 million, $40 million spent yeah. on that campaign, and yet it has it has attracted enormous amounts of critical comment specifically, and it's a cell phone because that young woman who's in that bed is currently not a prioritised recipient of a coronavirus vaccine. 
So there's been this complete stuff up around vaccine supply where younger people were discouraged from trying to get the vaccine, um, mm. actively discouraged because the idea was that we would prioritise older people. Okay, we were prioritising older people, but then there was this just total messaging confusion around could everybody get AstraZeneca if they wanted it, but was AstraZeneca dangerous? Was it dangerous for young people? What was the risk of clotting? And this just absolute snafu of communications that is now summed up in an ad which shows a young person gasping for air theoretically because they have coronavirus and weren't vaccinated and yet the vaccines are still not available to the overwhelming majority of young people unless, of course, they're enrolled at a $50,000-a-year private school like St Joseph's in Sydney or are that guy from Sydney Uni who managed to get four vaccines because he seems to be collecting them. Well, and, and this is this is part of the the, hor- the horror show, right? So today, Morrison. And we're gone- using the term horror show because the term <laughs> that Bill Shorten used to, in, with more precision, let's face it, yeah. to describe the present uh, situation with coronavirus management by the Morrison Federal Liberal National Government. Um, we can't say that on this pro- on this program because it's the agreement that we've made with Apple that we can't use those particular words. So we'll go with horror show. But I think we all know the actual term that Ben and I would use unmoderated somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, part of this horror show now is Morrison trying to blame the doctors for the confusion. When since day one, Morrison has mumbled and bumbled and fumbled his way through this. He has given late-night press conferences where he has told millions of Australians that they're non-essential and to go to Centrelink, he's he's thrown people on the scrap heap. He's pushed public servants under the bus. You know, he has just continuously failed to clearly and concisely communicate what the situation is, what people need to do, and how they can protect their lives and their livelihoods. And and for him to now turn around and say, "Oh, the confusion is a result." of changing medical advice, it's like, mate, you have come out ahead of the doctors every time and confused the situation and made it worse and worse. I'm also just wanting to touch on the fact that in New South Wales, we're seeing wait times of up to six hours now for tests because something that I've not seen before in the course of the pandemic, the New South Wales government is saying that there are, you know, if you're an essential worker, go to work. They're not giving any definition of that. And so there's still lots of things open. But if you live in Fairfield, the local government area of Fairfield, and you are an essential worker, again, no definition. So basically anybody who's going to work, you've got to get a test every three days and the police can pull you over. And if you don't have evidence, of the test, you can be fined. So now there are these huge queues, up to six hours, for people to get tested. None of the infrastructure is in place. It just seems to be total confusion right through the Liberal ranks, whether it's federal or state level, Van. Oh, yeah. And let's be very clear about the community in Fairfield and why there are exceptions being made and that particular community is coming under scrutiny. It's one of the most multicultural parts of Sydney. It's a suburb of, of 
essential workers who work in all different kinds of capacities who come from language backgrounds that, you know, where English is not a first language. And it's obvious to anybody who knows anything about Sydney can um, identify what the issue is with that particular area. And, of course, Gladys Berejiklian was on TV going, oh, the essential workers have done, they've done such a good job and it's so great, the local government area is doing so well. But why them and not the extremely white people who were the ones responsible for the outbreak in the eastern suburbs of Sydney? I mean, again and again, and Lydia Shelley has written about this for The Guardian, like again and again, we can see the cultural biases that go on in the way that these particular communities uh, are treated in the response, you know, as if the whiter your suburb is, the more likely you are to be responsible. At the same time, you know, there has been this horrible lag with delivering English language, like um, in multiple language materials. Jason Clare, who's an MP from Western Sydney from the Labor Party, um, got together some friends, some Labor people who had first languages other than English and, like, shot his own virus ad and was pumping it out on social media um, with because it was faster than the state or federal government in terms of getting um, translated material out to community. Literally got on the phone to a, a, a counsellor from Western Sydney who speaks Mandarin yep. and a doctor from his community who speaks Vietnamese. And Jihad Deeb, who did an ad in Arabic. And it's just like we're literally at the point where MPs who do not want their communities to suffer and die are having to, like, literally shoot iPhone videos because the governmental response is so poor. It's outrageous. Like, it is absolutely outrageous um, the way this is being managed. And there's just levels of preference, privilege and hypocrisy in all areas that the liberal, the liberal governments touch, absolutely all areas. And it, and in terms of what's going on in Fairfield, so everybody's been told that essential workers absolutely have to get vaccines. Okay, the word is out in those communities and those people are showing up. And what are they finding? They're finding queues for vaccine centres that are literally kilometres long, kilometres long. And people who queue for six, seven hours who still do not get access to the vaccine or to the testing. It, it's reminiscent really of, you know, one of those very first late-night press conferences that Morrison gave where he where he told everyone there'd be no wage subsidy and trundle off to Centrelink in the morning and you'll, you'll get looked after. And people will remember, I'm sure, the, the, the queues as a million people literally overnight found themselves without work, the queues that went for kilometres and kilometres outside Centrelink offices, many of which were understaffed because, of course, there was a pandemic and there were restrictions on how many people could be inside. So this is this is just total mismanagement and total failure of government. The, the New South Wales government does not seem able to get itself together. And I find it somewhat ironic, Van, that, you know, the New South Wales government is a government that has a minister for customer service and yet its citizens are lining up for hours, standing in queues and walking kilometres. You know, this is pretty pretty outrageous, pretty backwards stuff, not the sort of thing that we're used to seeing in Australia in the way we deal with the pandemic. 
Uh, look, let's be really honest about why these these problems are taking place. And we saw this with the federal response as well and the, oh, yeah, just go to Centrelink if you've got a problem. And everybody was like, have you actually been to Centrelink? Well, the answer is no. Well, the Liberal Party are not pre-selecting and electing people into Parliament who have, you know, experiences that are anything like the overwhelming majority of the population. Like mm. that's just that's not a thing that's happening. These are people who believe in a user-pays ideology because they're the kind of users who can afford to pay like private premiums on services. What's happened over the past 40 years in Australia since the neoliberal shift in the 1970s? And let's just remember that neoliberalism in Australia was was founded in terms of a system of governance by Malcolm Fraser. Like he mm, put mm. into place the actual mechanisms and the systems of the advice that that drove user pays ideology and trickle down economics and you know market economics in Australia. Like that came from Fraser. And yes, absolutely Keating and Hawke um, acted to in, like enfranchise that economic model. You know, they privatised government services and government corporations. That absolutely happened under the Hawke-Keating Labor government of 83 to 96. Important to remember is that the advice that Hawke and Keating got was from a treasury that Malcolm Fraser had purged of all of its Keynesians, its mm. like social democratic um, economic advisors, and stocked with neoliberals. That's how we got to this point and became an orthodoxy, an yeah. absolute orthodoxy. Well, the so reality much- that, just to continue this point, the reality mm. that the liberals live in is a, like a balance sheet reality where they look at all the things that they've outsourced and the public service jobs that they've cut and the amount of funding they've restricted and pat themselves on the back for being, oh, such great economic managers. They don't actually live in a reality where they physically see the results of that. Mm. Like the fact that they keep expecting these government services to be there, like that line about Centrelink or just go and get a test or just go and get a vaccine without actually making the connection that it's their economic policy that has actually stripped and hobbled these services for decades. Like they seem to think that these services are still out there for people when they actually, as governments, have been responsible for ensuring that they are not. Well, it's it's interesting, isn't it, Van? Because I, I was um, I did a sat in on a webinar today with Sally McManus, um, the the leader of the ACTU uh, and uh, our our sponsors, Australian Unions, where she was talking about that exact issue of neoliberalism and how it has stripped away and. Um, undermined people's ability to get wage increases, and yet the Morrison government continues to peddle this exact same line. You know, well, we're such good economic managers that wages will just sort of naturally rise, and they're just not publicly making the connection, um, whether they privately do or not, whether this is part of their grand plan or not. Uh, they're certainly not publicly making the connection that under neoliberalism, they've stripped away workers' power to do that. And I just do want to say, um, you know, given Australian unions are, are a sponsor of this show, it's probably a good time to, to mention to people that union members do get better wages and union members do stand up for services. We've seen that Throughout the pandemic, unions struggled for and won a wage subsidy, even though Morrison said there wouldn't be one. They've fought for um, 
protection in workplaces, uh, protective equipment in workplaces. They've delivered pandemic leave in many workplaces. You know, together we can we can fight back against these kind of neoliberal ideas that strip away people's access. So join your union. Van and I are both proud union members, australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday. So join join your union today because Van's 100% right. Like I think you're, you, you're so on the money. The liberal lived experience is so different from the vast majority of Australians that they just think, oh, well, we've outsourced that, so I'm sure it's being delivered in a way that is even better than before, when the reality is it's not being delivered at all in many cases. Oh, I will never get over the, just go to Centrelink and they'll sort you out. And it was like, you have never accessed this service in your life, have you? Not once. You have no idea, no idea about the queues and the waiting and the admin and the emotional pressure, like all of those things. And the idea that somebody who has literally been themselves individually responsible for turning Centrelink into just this horrible, torturous purgatory of, you know, of, of waiting and failure couldn't make the links between their own decisions and reality was, I mean, yeah. I think, like it's, I I think it's a good, I think it's a good um, time for us to talk about how Morrison has put um, party before nation because the support package that's been announced for New South Wales, um, I'll get into some of the details in a moment, but that fundamentally, as I understand it, requires people to apply for support through Centrelink now. So they, they've said they're not going to bring back JobKeeper, which allowed people to have that connection with their employer, which was the sort of the, at least the very base of the of the wage subsidy model, um, even if it wasn't all of the wage subsidy model that that unions and workers wanted. Um, now they've completely said there's going to be these payments, but they're effectively through Centrelink. So it's once again they're they're telling people off you go to Centrelink in New South Wales. Yeah, of course. Um, this has been particularly controversial. That was an unbelievable interview between Laura Tingle and Josh Frydenberg last night, which I certainly recommend everybody try and find on iView because, Laura Tingle, you know you're in the presence of great journalism when a journalist just keeps asking questions and the interview subject just is obliged to extend more and more garbage. Like that's when you know <laughs> a political journalist is doing their job. And Laura Tingle was like, you blamed the Andrews government in Victoria for um, for coronavirus being out in the community. You blamed them for economic downturns based on lockdown. You blamed them for all of these things. Literally the same thing is happening in New South Wales with the difference that New South Wales was in a better position, had more warning and all of these other privileges. So are you now going to blame New South Wales? And and Frydenberg just kept dodging and dodging and dodging. I've seen less dodging at, at you know, like at a dodgeball, dodgeball tournament. <laughs> like seriously, it was something else. And, you know, I never really refuted the accusations, but and Tingle just kept going, going, so are you, and do you blame the New South Wales government? You know, why is there a difference? between the way that you've treated Victoria and the way you've treated New South Wales. And, of course, Andrew put, Andrew's put out a statement today, well, last night, it's all a bit of a blur, saying this is outrageous. Like Victoria, because it's a later state, has to 
absolutely clamour and, you know, bash pots and pants basically to get any help from the federal government. But a Liberal state, neoliberal New South Wales or neoliberal South Wales is in trouble and, of course, all of a sudden all of this support is forthcoming. And it was interesting watching just the rage of Victorians ripple across the internet last night Mm. and people who were Liberal voters going, why is this happening? Like why is there... Like, how can a government possibly justify a difference in treatment between the two states? And, you know, it's interesting because politically the Liberals are going very hard in trying to win seats in Victoria. Obviously they're bolstering their girl Gladys Liu. Um, They've pre-selected like a former local mayor to run against Libby Coker in Karangamite. They're putting on a challenge in McEwen. They obviously have a target seat list to try and bolster the majority by winning seats in Victoria. They've pre-selected someone to run against Peter um, uh, Peter Murphy in Dunkley, mm. um, and you know, and they've started that campaign really early, trying to build the profile of these people. And it's just like, but you hate Victorians. <laughs> you, well, they do, don't they? I mean, they- you despise us. You resent the way that we respond to lockdown and the fact that we adopt rules and the fact that we stand up for ourselves and that have a premier who's willing to argue with you at National Cabinet in the best interests of the country as opposed to just Victoria, you have absolutely poured buckets on um, border closures, you have attacked the speed of our lockdown, literally everything we have done to keep ourselves safe to ensure that after we knew how coronavirus did function in the community after that awful first wave in Victoria where we had those hundreds of infections, you have criticised that and now you are just pretending none of that happened. Like I said on Twitter, you know, like short of Josh Frydenberg is if it happens in Victoria, it's Dan Andrews's fault. If it happens anywhere else, it's a tragically unavoidable circumstance. And, you know, this is this has rightly caused outrage right across the spectrum because it also – it it feels very much par for the course, right? Like it feels when you think about the car park rorts and you think about the sports rorts and you think about the money for the sort of bodgy Great Barrier Reef Foundation and the overpayment for the land for the Sydney airport and, and all this all these just scandal after scandal after the water the water rorts, it, it just... Grasslands, grasslands, the amount of money that they pay on these ridiculous um, just adds ad up, campaigns, right? the milkshake ad, like, yes, it, it does just, add up. It just adds, it adds up, up to, to billions of dollars of waste. Yeah, but also this, this concept that these, these, are not, these are not politicians, even in the Menzies era, you know, even in, even in the Howard era, you would have to say there were some politicians... Who, who in those governments were doing what they thought was right, even if there was a political cost to it, um, and that was in the interest of the nation. You can't, like, I, can't, I just can't say that about the Morrison government. There's just a continual politicking of every issue and a, and a redirection to say, oh, well, Andrews is the one politicking. We're just the ones who are giving New South Wales more money. And let's be really clear about this. They are giving them more money. Like this idea, oh, well, it's going to be the same for everyone. Well, what's going to be and what is are clearly very different because what is is that the payment for Sydney has gone up to $375 for those losing up to 20 hours of work a week and up 
to $600 for people who've lost more than that. Now, I don't have any problem with them getting money. I think it's absolutely necessary. But And also, there's, there's federally funded payments to business between $1,500 and $10,000, none of which was available um, in Victoria. And, and you go, well, again, no issue with, with, with government supporting working people and small business. Think it's a good thing. But it is a differential treatment. And, and suggesting that it's not, make, it, it's like we're not idiots, mate. You know, people right across the country have been following the pandemic for 18 months. We've been living and breathing it. We know that media consumption is up. We know that people are more across the details of what's going on with pandemic outbreaks than almost any other news item or issue in the last 30 years. So for them to kind of suggest that we're all dummies and can't tell the difference between $500 and $600 is so insulting. Like it's this oh, it look, It's politics. so bad. And the thing is that if they're doing it, and I'm saying this as somebody who is in New South Wales at the moment, with my mum and all of her friends and her community going to the doctor and the supermarket, all those things, like it's very – it's very clear to people in New South Wales if Morrison is trying to buy them off with this kind of support, it's a bit late because everyone here has now grasped that the lockdown should have happened weeks ago. And, like, I've on, on this show since I've been here, I've complained to you about Sydney people being really loose with the lockdown and things that I have seen that, you know, as a Victorian have terrified my little Soviet heart deliveries with people without masks on, people going to one another's houses, playing basketball, and, like, you know, in the fact you can shop at Louis Vuitton, all of these things, and me just going, what kind of hellscape is this? But, you know, we are now weeks into the lockdown here. Like, the, the lockdown came down at midnight on the 26th. We're now halfway through July, and the locals now understand that it should have been hard and fast and sharp, and then we would not be in the situation that we're in now, where this kind of, oh, yeah, we'll keep the shops open, nobody's life really has to change, has just led this entire state into, like, into darkness of coronavirus and extended indefinite lockdowns. The New South Wales government have said 30th of July. I don't believe we're going to be out of lockdown before then. There was a newspaper article yesterday where some um, modelers from one of the universities in New South Wales um, was like, New South Wales is not going to be out of the woods until December if well, the, a hard lockdown is not put in place. Well, the Burnett Institute has has said that the, the, the CEO or leader, I'm not sure what his title is there, um, you know, institutes have, have strange titles sometimes, but uh, he he's said that Delta is 50 times more virulent than the strain that Victoria had to deal with last year. Uh, Victoria did get on top of it. I mean, this is one of the things that I think drives some Victorians, myself included, a little bit mad, is that we're one of the only jurisdictions in the world that did get in front of and stop the Delta variant. And we and that's because we learned through hard, hard experience in 2020, you know, that and we went hard this time. We went hard early this time. And for New South Wales to witness that, for Morrison to witness that, and for him to come out and praise Gladys for not going hard early. And now this awful situation where 
Australians are in lockdown, essentially indefinitely, variations of it. The people are divided again by state borders, that families are split up, ours included, uh, and, and that the virus is now spread back into Victoria and into other parts of the country is so maddening. Like it's just ridiculously frustrating to then have these people these politicians like Morrison come out and try and blame everybody else. You know, it's it's so aggravating, Van. I just, I want to swear, but I won't. But I will say this. I I will say this to anybody who is unsure about their situation. Just remember that right now there is people who are going to work in shops without any access to vaccines, being told through scare campaigns they should be booking vaccination appointments that are not available, being told they have to get tested, even if they have to wait for six hours. Imagine being imagine being a healthcare worker who's done 10 hours, 12 hours on their feet caring for people and then having to sit in your car or stand up for another five or six hours waiting for a test. Like, it's and then being outrageous. told you can't get one. Because yeah. they run out or it's closed or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is where we are. And, like, it was unsurprising that that clip of Bill Shorten um, on afternoon briefing, I was watching it while that interview was taking place between Patricia Cabellas and Bill Shorten, and it just went viral immediately. I think from the shock that there was a politician on television actually speaking like a person and saying yeah. what everybody knows about how bad the response has been. I don't know if you know this, but the the new outbreak has become a news item um, internationally. Yeah. So there have been stories in the New York Times this week and on the BBC this week about how Australia had this sort of, you know, golden window to really get on top of the virus and to keep it out and to suppress it and to stop it from spreading. And because we couldn't get vaccinations under control, it's now, it's back on. It's all back on. And it just, I mean, the rest of the world just must be looking at us going, are you total clowns? Like you had suppressed it, you had it, you know, you had the borders up, you had all of these systems in place. You know, why didn't you speed up the vaccine? What were you not getting at this point? Well, they still don't get it. I mean, you know, again, just to... Just to harp on about the JobKeeper issue, you know, there there is now millions of people in New South Wales who face a prospect of no income or highly reduced income. You know, again, the union movement has been out there today and pretty much every day saying we have to speed up the vaccine rollout, we have to have proper quarantine facilities, you have to have a wage subsidy, stop mucking about, stop fiddling around the edges, do this properly. And, you know, again, yes, they're our sponsor, and I'm just going to keep saying you've got to join your union. This this is one of those moments you know, a bit like last year where we have to, as a people, stand together and demand, demand our leaders do the right thing. That's what made Morrison turn on JobKeeper in the first place was that people went, this is not good enough. We will not accept this. And the leadership of the trade union movement, of people within the Labor Party as well, but across the community, 
you know, people joined up. People said, no, we're not going to. We're not going to do this. We're not going to queue up for hours and hours to get a below poverty level payment. We're not going to queue up for hours and hours because you won't open more testing centres. You will do these things. Well, you this will is do the these thing. We demand them. I don't want people to think about this like on a purely pragmatic political level. There's one thing that politicians understand, and it's numbers. That's yeah. it. It's, at the end of the day they will say black is white or everybody has a fern growing out of their head if, you know, if that means a, a, another couple of votes potentially might drop into their column or not drop out of it. And That's making the highlight reel. Everyone has a fern growing out of their head. <laughs> and when when Celebrate Manus speaks on behalf of the union movement, she's speaking on behalf of two million people. Imagine the power of those people if she was speaking on behalf of three million or 4 million, or 5 million. Like, I want everybody to imagine the kind of influence that the democratic organisations of the union movement would be able to exert on public policy in this country with more members. Because there's strength in numbers. Absolutely. It's not just a question of joining a union because then you'll have somebody who will be able to, like, back you in the workplace if you have a problem with a boss or an accident or, you know, God forbid anything happens to you on a one-to-one level. But it's also adding a voice to political clout that exists solely to represent working people. And, you know, a better job keeper, a better form of social support, you know, a pressure on governments to expand these services that they've cut back for years. That's actually only possible and becomes more possible with the more people who are part of that movement. Absolutely. So... Join your union. I'm just going to keep saying it. AustralianUnions.org.org.au backslash wow. W-O-W. Join your union. And by the way, Ben and I love hearing from people who join the union as a result of listening to this show. It's our favourite kind of fan mail. It makes us so happy because we see people making a proactive decision about strength in numbers and demanding something better. And if you're one of the many, many people who has joined their union after listening to The Week on Wednesday, congratulations on becoming part of one of the greatest movements in human history. And don't forget to share this show with other people and talk to the people that you work with and people in your community about becoming a union member and listening to The Week on Wednesday. Van, I want to move on slightly because, of course, this is going to keep playing out. You and I are going to talk about this um, for weeks yet, it's just going to be part of the lived reality. Well, we from- have to because we're physically separated by it for yeah. an indefinite period with so little hope that things are going to get better before they get worse. But, of course, they get better when we stand together and make them better. I want to touch on this other story that really seems like a bit of a Crosby texter dead cat on the table uh, around the uh, the Chinese spy ship, the the Chinese Navy ship Tian Wang Jing, which is off the coast of Queensland, and Peter Dutton is out today doing the doing the media rounds. Um, in a really kind of highlighting that it's there, but trying to reassure people that it's okay that it's there. But don't forget it's there. Um, can I just say to people? I just want everyone to just appreciate for a moment. This is Ben Davison, uh, you know, 
armchair military nerds time to shine. <laughs> you know, Mr. Mr. Defence Policy from the couch is about to speak and there I are, love it. There, there are many better podcasts for military policy discussion, I'm sure. But I think you're the, sure the, or you're listening to all of them. I know what you're like. <laughs> I know what you get in your news briefings in the morning, Ben. But the I think the the political and news element of this story is that this is not a news story, right? So the, the reality of this is that Australia and the United States conduct regular war games. We do it every couple of years. It's called Talisman Sabre, uh, and this year's version is quite creatively called Talisman Sabre 2021. Uh, and we know this because the military puts out a media release about it. Um, It's not top secret. It's not hidden. uh, You know, they don't invite cameras to every single element of it, obviously, but it's well known. And, of course, China, being a large nation with a big navy in our region, wants to keep an eye on these things. So it has sent a ship, the exact same ship that it sent to the last two of these, named Talisman Sabre 2019 and Talisman Sabre 2017 to sit in the same place it sat in international waters off the coast of Queensland to observe the exercises that the Australian and US military will be conducting over the course of two weeks. This is really standard stuff. This is the sort of thing that we do as well. And in fact, If you look up on Google Australian uh, military observations of China, you'll find that we do the exact same thing. Countries do this all the time. You send a ship that'll sit there, it'll listen, it won't make many transmissions, if any at all, and then it'll sail home and download whatever data it's able to collect. We know that, the United States knows that, and As a result, there'll be nothing about Talisman Sabre that is top secret or so vital to the national security of either nation that if the Chinese military were to find out, it would put us in any form of jeopardy. This is a non-story of the highest calibre of non-story. This is what countries have been doing since countries have existed, observing each other as we posture in order to demonstrate to one another that we're actually big enough and scary enough to fend them off should they have any notion of trying to take us over. That's why we have war games exercises and that's why other countries watching them is not actually a problem. So I just encourage people, if you're worried about the Tian Wang Jing being in international waters, um, albeit in our broader economic zone, uh, which just means it's part of the international treaties where we're allowed to fish, essentially, uh, don't be. The, the, the Tian Wangjing is not going to be firing upon fishing vessels. It's not there to do anything other than what it was there to do two years ago and two years before that, and that is to watch us and the United States posture and strut about to demonstrate just how tough and ready we are if China was to do anything silly. So, yeah, I just encourage people to recognise that this is Peter Dutton trying to change the story. Um, And you'll notice that for probably half an hour of the 43 minutes we've been discussing 
the events of the last week, we've been talking about COVID and the mismanagement of COVID by Morrison. Uh, and of course, Dutton wants to change that story to be about national security and his you know, big, strong defence department. Yeah, well, literally cyber-rattling against the Chinese. Isn't it amazing whenever any kind of uh, blowback starts coming from communities? And let's face it, there was a poll out this week that said at the moment um, Labor on track to win 78 seats uh, if an election was called tomorrow. Now, you and I are having, unfortunately, <laughs> an intimate understanding of the polling process um, are aware of the fact that... <laughs> One shouldn't necessarily invest money on those kind of odds, uh, but, yeah. you know, certainly um, when the soothsayers say something with uh, with numbers and focus groups, it's worth listening to uh, for that 24-hour period, um, <laughs> not necessarily the day of the election. Um, you know, in, when we keep threatening to do this content we'll put behind a Patreon, we really should do an episode on how focus groups actually work and how to run a poll so you get anything like a consistent result. But, you know, that's uh, special content for another time perhaps. Let us, I, let, us know, let us know if content like that would be appealing to you and if you'd be willing to pay. <laughs> yes, because, you know, Ben and I have some uh, battle scars from long, hard uh, campaign experience that, you know, many funny stories I believe is the, is the catchphrase there. However... Um, obviously, the government is not going to be pleased uh, with any kind of polls that suggest they could lose the next election because winning is all they care about. Love the winning, not so hot on the governing. Yeah. And whenever that happens, all of a sudden the Chinese are a problem. Are a problem. Have you noticed? Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, you know, it's Chinese spies and Chinese donations and Chinese buying agricultural land and Chinese buy ships and this old, well-worn sinophobia that, turns up with amazing electoral convenience, Ben. Yeah, and, you know, as somebody who grew up on the goldfields of Victoria, um, this is literally as old as colonisation. You know, we've had laws in place that have demonised people from China, people of Chinese descent for as long as we have had written laws in this country. And frankly, it's uh, it's a disgrace. You know, Peter Dutton is a disgrace. I, I, you know, there's so many reasons why he's a disgrace. We just don't have time to go into them all now. But Dude, the- Peter Dutton is a disgrace to disgraces. All the yeah. other disgraces are getting together going, oh, my God, do we seriously have to deal with that guy? It's awful. It's almost, it's almost like he's the unwanted uh, Trump relative. He's such a disgrace. Um, anyway, let's let's move on because, as I say, you know, spying on other countries' war games is what every country does. We do it. It doesn't mean we're about to go off to war with the countries that we observe, uh, and it certainly doesn't mean they're about to go off to war with us. Ben, let's have some good news because I think the nation needs it, frankly. Um, and the good news is about feral goats and compost fertilizer. Yeah. Tell us more. So there's a problem in this country with feral goats, like there's a problem in this country with feral camels and feral horses and feral cats and feral dogs and just feral, feral pigs. Feral pigs in um, far north Queensland in particular. And the thing is, it's not the goats' fault. We know that the goats did not choose to go feral. There was no committee meeting of the goats going, you know, 
let's get back at those guys. That's not a thing. It's not a but cows with guns situation. Is it's what you're not a cows me. with guns situation, although one sometimes dreams of it at nighttime is solving <laughs> a lot of problems. So feral goats are a huge problem because they're also clover hoofed, which means they destroy native grasses, drive soil erosion, they destroy habitats for uh, native animals. They're huge problems um, for farmers in particular. And, of course, um, the issue becomes how do you get rid of them? And, yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways to get rid of them. We don't need to detail the various kinds of feral goat murder that take place. But there was a really great article. I think, um, I think people prefer the term culling to murder when it comes to feral animals, but please continue. Well, look, I mean, either reconcile yourself to taking an animal life or don't. As a meat eater, like, I think yeah. the only ethical position with meat eating is to acknowledge exactly what you're doing. Hey, I've already confessed to being at McDonald's this week. It's and, you know. and Look, we don't. We are who we are. Um, please no hate mail from vegans. Please no. Yeah, we respect please. your right no to be more. vegan. No we more will hate defend, mail from vegan. We will defend your veganism and your right to it incessantly um, while we have another burger. Um, anyway, I want to talk about what happens with feral goats because, of course, there are environmental issues that aren't just about what the goats do when they are alive but also what they do when they're dead because yeah. they release a lot of carbon. And it, like, and they also attract other pests who come yeah. to feed off the corpses of these goats, and that's if you can get them. And I mean, it's it's kind it's a type like you know, introduced species are a nightmare. That's yeah. true. Anyway, what's happened is um, regenerative agriculturalists, who are some of the world's best people, who are people who study ways of like low environmental impact agriculture and soil regeneration. And the whole idea is that if you take care of soil, soil itself can be carbon capture if you um, if you manage it properly and can be better for plants. They have uh, developed a technology around recycling the dead bodies of um, culled, if you like, uh, feral goats and yep. feral pigs and other kinds of feral animals and recycling the bodies of them into super nitrogen-rich fertiliser that can be used to rehabilitate soil in fertilising cubes. And we love this. We love this because uh, nature is a wonderful series of cycles if you work with it rather against it. Um, we love this because it's better for the soil. We love this because it, in terms of carbon balancing, it's much more positive. We also love it because it's a technology that's available farm to farm, which means that farmers also do not have to buy expensive, dodgy chemical fertilisers in order to fertilise crops. And yeah. the use of this fertiliser also keeps down weeds and you know and farmers are going there are ways for us to look at the problem and actually find a solution and if we are culling these animals we can use what we're doing to work with nature and regenerate uh, these environments around us so we'll post a link to the article and it's really really great stuff i understand that people um, get squeamish about the idea of, you know, goat corpse fertilisation. Like I do understand that. I understand there are people squeamish about the whole concept of meat in general. But when we look at what do environmental solutions look like, working with cycles of life and death and bodies and regeneration, that's really where it's at. So, yeah, Absolutely. it's fantastic. And um, the more regenerative agriculture we can get in this country, the better for our soil, the better for our carbon capture, the better and ultimately cheaper for our farmers. 
and um, the better for everyone. Isn't it? Isn't it great? You know, it's it's one of the things that I think we're going to have to do more of as our climate changes, as as the as the kind of exploitation of, of workers on farms becomes increasingly unacceptable as it should always have been, um, how do we how do we help farmers improve practices? And farmers are driving this themselves, right? This is these are farmers in southeast New South Wales who've come up with this practice. This isn't, you know, it's a guy from Queanbeyan, a dude called Jerry Gillespie, and yeah. he's been lobbying governments for years to say there are better ways of us doing this. Like he's um, he's a specialist in organic waste management and his frustration has come from why do we let natural materials that can aid processes be, be wasted? Like that's just total madness. And, of course, the fertiliser that comes from processed dead goat is better than the chemical fertiliser. Like it's yeah. better. It, it fertilises more. And you know these are these are the ecological systems that exist to support life on this planet, and maybe just maybe we should engage with them. So let's hope that uh, government will start to listen to the farmers, uh, and not the agri corporates uh, that, of course, do profit from weed spray and um, chemical. Uh, fertilizers and so on. Ben, that's a really great news story. I think uh, that we can solve a few problems there uh, with one solution. I always like solving multiple problems with one solution. It's a really, I think that's a really great and efficient use of everybody's time. I feel um, I should also tell everybody that Ben is a rather wonderful permaculture gardener. And <laughs> if you that. engage any of the concepts of permaculture, like you become very aware of the fact that you know, then doesn't need to be waste, that, the, that, you know, a garden can feed itself and create opportunities for just, you know, incredible beauty and sustenance if you work with it. Yeah, and, absolutely. you know, it's something that's really important to us. Our little patch just brings us all the joy in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd encourage anybody who can. I appreciate not everybody is as, is as lucky as us to have um, space for a garden, but if you can get a garden going, you know, do look at how you make it as self-sustaining as possible, and minimise the the chemicals that you use because you you will find that a very rewarding experience. I know I certainly have. Well, Van, I think that's that's a wrap for this week, the week on Wednesday. Again, I want to give a shout-out and a big thanks to the show sponsor, Australian Unions. Um, we, we talked a lot about joining a union today because I think in these moments of crisis, in these moments of concern, that sense of community and belonging, of being able to affect positive change, it's just so important. And I know I've taken a lot of... Um, solace a lot of comfort from some of my comrades in the union movement over the last couple of weeks while we've been separated who've reached out to me it's such an important community to be part of so do join your union big thanks to australian unions for everything they're doing including sponsoring this show union um, membership is a tax deduction there you go, as you're doing your taxes um also just a big shout out to all of our listeners in Sydney, I know we have many, many listeners in New South Wales who undoubtedly are going through just really difficult times. Know that myself and Van, in Van's case, literally right there with you. Um, we've been through it in Victoria. 
you can get through it. You do have to make the demands of your government, but you can make it happen. Um, and, you know, do look after yourselves. Do what you need to do um, to be okay. Do what you need to do to be okay. That's probably what I would say. Van, any final words? Uh, I miss you terribly. Um, I miss you too. I'm very grateful for all the support that I've received um, and my mother has received. I'm here because my mother is unwell. Um, I've, like, people who I don't even know who've been sending me lovely messages and things, and it's just so kind. And uh, I think, you know, kindness, kindness inspires kindness, and I'm just really incredibly grateful um, and, um, you know, and made a stronger and happier person by the kindness that people have shown to me. And thank you. So thank you, everyone. Don't forget to share this episode, like, subscribe, uh, talk to your friends, talk to your co-workers, talk to your relatives. Uh, if you are in lockdown, catch up on our back catalogue. There's plenty there now. Uh, and do let us know any stories, any issues, anything you think we should be talking about. We do take all of that feedback on board. I do try and reply to as many as I possibly can. And if I haven't got to yours yet, don't worry. I will eventually get there. Um, just keep uh, keep listening and keep in touch. I love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you terribly. Look after the dog. <laughs> Always. Bye. Bye.